Hey everyone, the It's All Journalism team wanted to remind you that we have an email newsletter where you can get all of the latest news about our podcast. Go to our website, itsalljournalism.com, and follow the link to subscribe. While I've got your attention, Covered Press, the totally free task and story management tool for journalists, is fast running out of its free spots. It's giving away 500 accounts to journalists who sign up at coveredpress.com, where you can manage all your ideas, chat with editors, track payments, and more, with a lot more to come. Check it out and sign up for free at coveredpress.com. And now, enjoy our latest episode. What we're doing together through News Guild is saying the priority needs to be investing in the journalism, investing in the employees, not spending it in other places that don't matter. As more and more journalists begin demanding better hours, better pay, and more benefits, the idea of unionizing their newsrooms is becoming more common. But perhaps it's not as common as it should be. I'm Michael O'Connell. Welcome to It's All Journalism. Rebecca Sanders is a consumer protection reporter with the Arizona Republic. She recently co-authored a study about unpaid overtime leave at Gannett Papers with the News Guild. And Megan Taros is the South Phoenix reporter for the Republic. Rebecca and Megan, welcome to It's All Journalism. Thanks for having us. Thank you for having us. So usually I like to start these things finding a little bit about my guests, you know, how they get interested in journalism. Let's start with you first, Rebecca. You know, what got you interested in journalism and, and how did you end up at the Republic? Well, I actually started getting interested in journalism because I babysat for a journalist down the street and he would send me home with stacks of New Yorker magazines and Phoenix New Times and other great journalism. And so that sparked my interest. I was just incurably curious and realized that it was a profession where I could ask endless questions. And that sounded like a good deal to me. So I started by interning at the Arizona Republic where I grew up. And almost 15 years later, I'm still at the newspaper. I've had a lot of guests on this podcast. You were the first one to say that they, they got into this because they were babysitting. <laughs> uh, so Stroke I think that's of pretty luck. cool. Stroke of luck. Okay, cool. So how about you, Megan? How'd you get interested in journalism? How'd you end up at the Republic? The short story is that in high school, I was a freshman in high school and I knew I liked to write, but I was thinking about what I wanted to do. And I just kind of realized like, I don't really know what I would do with an English degree and I, I wanted to help people and I didn't really see myself as helping people in the way I wanted to as like a fiction writer. So I, I talked to my English teacher and I said, you know, I, I really want to write and I really want to help people. And I'm kind of stuck here. I don't, I don't know what to do that fits both of those interests. And fortuitously, she was also the advisor for the, the campus newspaper. And she said, oh, you could be a journalist. And that set everything off. I started reading the paper more and getting more uh, interested in news. And it's been that way ever since. As far as, as joining the Republic, I'm actually here on a grant, the Report for America grant. It places journalists in newsrooms looking to expand their coverage or fill coverage gaps. And I was actually in Idaho as part of my first newsroom for Report for America covering Latino affairs. It was the First time that the local paper in Twin Falls, Idaho, had a Latino affairs beat. 
But then I saw that the Republic had an opening for the next year to cover Black and Latino communities in South Phoenix. And it just sounded like an incredible opportunity. And, you know, I, I signed myself up and I, and I got this position and I've been here for about almost two years now. Are you still in on that grant or is it, is it something that sort of expanded from that? I'm still on the grant. Yes. Oh, okay. So the reason you're here is this study that was done with the News Guild about the unpaid leave. So what was the situation? How did how did this, you know, come about? Well, the study that we conducted through News Guild and it was really conducted by fellow investigative and data journalists all across the company that owns the Arizona Republic, Gannett was to look at pay equity in newsrooms around the country and to see if the trends that we've seen in so many industries were the same at America's largest newspaper. Are women and people of color paid equitably to men and white journalists? And the data doesn't lie. The data showed definitively that there are massive pay gaps that point to pay discrimination in many newsrooms at Gannett. And this is the first time that newsrooms across Gannett have been looked at in this way and and that the studies have been released publicly. I, way back in 2016 and 2017, had been asking Gannett through every official channel that you're supposed to go through from, you know, talking to HR to talking to the women's employee resource group to talking to the company's ethics committee to talking to managers about looking at pay equity at the company. In fact, at the time, the vice president of news was doing a book tour in 2017 for this book that she wrote about women in the workplace and demanding what we're worth. And I approached her and said, boy, wouldn't it be great for Gannett to look at pay equity for women at this huge media company? And uh, she was retiring and she said, oh, yes, yes, we'll do that. Talk to HR. And yet, as we continued to ask, we were told no, no, we've looked at the issue, there's no problems, but no, we won't show you the data. We won't show you what we found. Just trust us. There are no pay gap problems at Gannett, which was a little bit strange for journalism executives to tell journalists because if there is anyone in the world who does not simply trust but requires verification, it's journalists. We want the documents. We want the data. We don't take people's word for it. We want to see it in black and white. And so that strange non-transparency from the company actually helped to spur our unionization effort at the Republic. And uh, once we unionized, we had the legal right to request salary data from the company and get it and analyze it ourselves and use all the best practices for pay equity analysis that are out there. So this was a landmark study that we released in April of this year, 2021. 
And the, the findings were, were pretty stunning and showed that Gannett actually had been lying to us about pay equity in our newsrooms. So this sprang out of the Arizona Republic's newsroom? It was a joint collaboration between the Arizona Republic and other union newspapers at Gannett, such as the Palm Beach Post and the South Bend Tribune. So we looked at around 450 employees. Let me let me back up a little bit about the unionization effort. You know, how difficult was that? You've been here for 15 years, so you're obviously there through the process. Was was that something that you guys really had to struggle to make happen? How willing was Gannett to have union shops? <laughs> Gannett was not very happy uh, with our unionizing drive, but it was such an incredible experience because we had been essentially taught through so many years of layoffs and pay cuts and shrinking benefits that this is just the way it was and don't complain, put your head down and suffer. And by unionizing, what we realized is that it sounds cliche, but it is true. We're stronger together. Once we started linking arms and listening to each other's experiences with, you know, low pay or with problems with the health insurance or unpaid overtime, we started realizing that we all had issues that we could solve together if we were united. And that's really all it's about is just supporting each other and saying, we're not going to be exploited. We're professionals who deserve to be paid a living wage, who deserve decent benefits and respect. And we do important work that underpins American democracy. The company should invest in us because we keep this company alive. It was a tough unionizing process, but News Guild was there for us every step of the way. And we won our election two years ago with flying colors. And we've been bargaining for a a good contract and and able to do things like this pay study, or we've prevented layoffs for two years now. We've saved our 401k that Gannett cut for non-union journalists. So many things that have come out of our effort have been positive. What's your take on this, Megan? What have you been able to observe in your two years there? Yeah, I mean, part of the reason that I became involved in some of the pay equity things is that I noticed that everyone's experience with pay and overtime were different depending on their beats, depending on who their managers were. You know, initially, you know, I had a a difficult time getting overtime. It was, it was not viewed as an option. I was really in the dark about what I was being paid and as how it compared to other reporters. And then I I got a different editor and things changed. And it it made me start to to wonder like, well, why, why is this happening? Why is there no transparency in this newsroom? And I, and the more I talked to people, the more I realized that 
everybody was on a completely different page. And I don't think that people's experiences should be driven based on the beat they're on or the manager they have. And I think, you know, newsrooms and, and, and news companies like Annette should be a, a held accountable and should have a standard that they can be held accountable to. I think some of the reason that newsrooms get away with this is that everybody is just conveniently, you know, one step removed from the conversation. And it allows them to sort of haphazardly apply their policies to people and people be inevitably disadvantaged by it. And I think it benefits news companies to not have a baseline to be held accountable to. So part of the reason that I, as I said, that I've become so invested in this is that I don't think that it's fair, number one, to sort of be a casualty of this lack of transparency and that, or that people's careers should be diametrically different depending on who their editor is or what they're covering or, you know, unfortunately, if they're people of color, if they're women. That's sort of what I've been been seeing, especially in Gannett. So I was fortunate myself to have worked in a, uh, a union shop at a digital website for a large corporation. And I was actually, you know, it was a late in life experience and I'd been at other newsrooms which were kind of run like traditional newsrooms, that there was this culture that, well, you know, the election's coming around, you're going to be working, you know, 15 hours a day. And, yeah, well, we can't give you any more money because things are tight, especially in these terrible, this terrible economy. And you, because of the culture, you want to, oh, yeah, okay, I understand. We're all on the same team. But once I ended up working for the the other news site that was run by a corporation, I began to understand that, the company is very different than the newsroom and very different than, and they have a very different perspective and different needs than, than the reporter does. It, you know, behooves the reporter to be more active in, you know, demanding fairness. You know, there wasn't a lot of, you know, disagreement necessarily what was going on at, at the company I was at, but there was always this opportunity to go to the union. There was this opportunity to, you know, participate in, you know, setting some sort of standards with the relationship between the business that is, you know, making money off of uh, off of your hard work. Talk about a little bit about newsroom culture. Was it was there, you know, both with like adopting the union, but also with this these questions you're raising about pay equity and overtime. Was this something that that a lot of people in the newsroom were, were feeling? Was there any sort of resistance that now nah, this is not something that we're really going to win? Or you know, what were your thoughts? Well, yes, I think that change can be scary, right? We are accustomed to certain ways of doing things. And so when someone comes along and says, you know, let's reimagine, um, it can sometimes cause some fear or some doubt or some questions. So we certainly, you know, had to overcome that by just talking to each other and coming to the point where we realized we can make a difference, we can make a positive change. And one reason we know we can is because we've seen it happen elsewhere. You know, we had seen the LA Times do an amazing job unionizing and winning a really strong contract. And we had seen the benefits that had accrued to longtime newspaper unions at the New York Times and the Washington Post and the Wall Street Journal, where their salaries were 
across the board, you know, higher than non-union newspapers, even at smaller regional papers like in Minneapolis or Philadelphia, you know, they had benefits that we did not have solely because they had the strength of a union in their corner. And it remains a decision that each of us has to make. Are we going to settle for the status quo, whatever scraps we're handed, or are we going to hope for a better newsroom and work together to build that better newsroom? And, you know, one of the most pernicious myths that um, is perpetuated in newsrooms by media corporations is that there's no money available. You know, it's a little bit shocking that you know, reporters and journalists who are supposed to be the most skeptical out there just accept from their employer that there's no money for raises. But time and again, that is shown to be untrue when these corporations pay out millions of dollars in dividends to stockholders, or as Gannett has done in the last three years, paid out nearly $50 million in golden parachutes to executives, or when we unionized and they wanted to try, when we were planning to unionize and Gannett uh, decided to give out a bunch of raises trying to stop us from unionizing, suddenly the money is there. So it's really about priorities for money and what we're doing together through News Guild is saying the priority needs to be investing in the journalism, investing in the employees, not spending it in other places that don't matter. Again, from personal experience, I was asked at one time to take a pay cut and I agreed to do it. And when I spoke to another employee about it, he was like, no, they asked for it. And I I told him, no, I wouldn't. And so then, like, I was like, well, then why did I do it? And it never really sort of made sense to me after that. And I began to think about my relationship with uh, the people I was working with very differently after that. So you request that the study gets done. How is the information gathered? Whose opinions, whose input are you are helping to uh, inform this, this survey? So the survey was done with Gannett's own salary data. We basically did a, you know, records request to the company. It's a a right that you win when you unionize to make records requests of the company. And so a team of very highly talented, award-winning data journalists from across Gannett came together and we took this data, we anonymized it, and we started looking at the trends, just like you would with any data set that you get from any government agency. We started looking for the patterns. And some of the key findings were that women of color earned a median of $16,000 less than white men, and women earned about 10,000 less than men. And one argument against the study has been, well, women of color and, and journalists of color in our newsrooms are by and large younger and white and male employees are by and large older. So of course there's gonna be a pay gap. 
okay, well, that is a contributing factor. But number one, why don't we have experienced women and experienced journalists of color in our newsrooms? That's a problem. And number two, even when we controlled for age and experience, we found major pay gaps. For instance, women who worked at Gannett newspapers at least 30 years, you know, most of their career were earning $27,000 less than men who had the same amount of experience at Gannett. So there were really big red flags. And we also found that our newsrooms by and large were whiter than the communities we served. We looked at the racial demographics of the counties where these 14 newspapers were located and 13 of the 14 newsrooms did not match the racial demographics of the region that they covered. And then lastly, really amazing statistic, we were able to compare the newsrooms that had been unionized for decades compared to the newsrooms who had just recently unionized, like at the Arizona Republic, and don't yet have contracts. We don't yet have all of the benefits of, you know, a higher pay floor and cost of living and experience raises that our colleagues at, you know, the Detroit Free Press and the Indianapolis Star and Milwaukee have in their contracts. And what we found was longtime union newsrooms, their pay gaps were much smaller than those in the newsrooms that had only unionized recently. And we believe that that's because unionizing and gaining a contract sets a floor and it sets expectations for raises over time that can't be manipulated by, you know, favoritism or just random arbitrary decisions that are made in a non-union newsroom. Before the study began, were you aware of the disparities regarding people of color and of women of color? Is that something that you suspected? Yeah, I mean, I, I think, you know, this was something that was on uh, everybody's minds. And also, like, right before this happened, I mean, we started, like, it was the first domino fell in, like, a wave of people who were leaving our newsrooms, and the majority have been people of color. I mean, we've lost about, a, I want to say, a quarter of our newsroom during this pandemic, and, you know, a significant number of those people have been women and people of color and people from marginalized communities. And I think this is just a general problem in news. And so it always makes me laugh when news companies say that they value diversity or they prioritize diversity and therefore there's nothing to worry about because we see it over and over again that people who are most vulnerable when it comes to leaving this industry are people of color and women. You know, part of and part of my involvement here in pay equity is kind of twofold because I've been a pretty strong advocate of including language in our contract that values diversity and retention and values, including the newsroom in these efforts, because I think there's a lot of people who know this is happening, but they're not really sure what the company is really doing to address it, because all we ever really get are like these lovely meetings and 
you know, these nice emails talking about, oh, this is what we're doing, but we don't really see the results. We're pretty alienated from the results, if there are any, which, I mean, I do think there, there has been some change, but Gannett has wholesale refused to engage with us on diversity and retaining people of color. And, you know, as a woman of color, it's just, it's just incredible to me that, you know, we would talk so much, especially in the last year about how much we prioritize diversity. And yet Gannett doesn't want to engage with us. Gannett doesn't even want to hear what we have to say. I mean, time and time again, you know, making impassioned pleas for why we would like to be involved, at least on this newsroom's level, to take on pay disparity for women and people of color. And they've just said no. We've talked to a lot of people in newsrooms over the last couple of years, you know, in the aftermath of George Floyd's murder and Black Lives Matter movement. More diverse newsrooms has been a conversation, you know, that's been going on. And at the same time, you had this idea of, you know, newsrooms trying to figure out how they could better represent communities that they're covering. And that part of the problem was that, you know, what you brought up at the very beginning about about the Republic is the makeup of the editorial team was majority white, majority male, very different than the makeup of the community that they're covering. And so the push has been, if we need to be more diverse, we need to have a more diverse newsroom. And we need to be having conversations and covering a more diverse audience. So it's all kind of a transition type of thing, and it's all very kind of vague and everything. Yeah, we know we need to do this. We know we need to do this. So here are these newsrooms do this study, and you have all this evidence that bears this out, that these are the problems. You know, maybe if you address some of these pay disparities, maybe if you create initiatives that are going to make you know, more diverse hiring and, and retention that the good thing about that would be that maybe you would actually start reaching some of those communities because the, the staff, the people who are making the decisions at the editorial level are looking at things from a different perspective and a different life experience. So like good journalists, (laughs) you've got a bed of data here that supports your argument. But I guess what you're saying is that Gannett has been resistant to making any of these changes? Right. And I think that that was one of the most disappointing but not surprising things that happened in the wake of this pay equity study was that rather than acknowledging that their very talented journalists had done an extremely thorough job identifying a problem that needed to be fixed, Gannett executives instead resorted to essentially calling their own journalists hacks (laughs) and essentially saying, oh, you know, this is such a small sample, you know, it couldn't possibly reflect the rest of the company. Well, you know, we're happy to analyze the data of the entire company, just give it to us. And coming up with other arguments for why this study was not correct. And, you know, we would welcome the company trying to do their own analysis and then showing us how it was done. We offered before publishing this study to sit down with the company and walk through every part of it, and they refused. So Gannett loves to tell that it 
gets these diversity awards and has this commitment. But when it comes down to actually making changes that are significant and that are set in stone, the company is not willing to. We applaud, of course, that our newsroom has grown in diversity over the past few years, that we have wonderful new talent coming in. But why are we unable to retain really incredible women and journalists of color and men and white journalists as well? Why is our retention off the wall? Well, a lot of it has to do with the company not addressing these deep problems of pay and fairness and respect and all of that. And, you know, it's as simple as we've asked the company to commit in our contract to interviewing two people from underrepresented backgrounds for every open position. It's likely that the company is already following some kind of similar policy And it's a a policy that is so basic, and it's called the Rooney Rule because it was adopted across the NFL years ago, and it's adopted at some of the most high-profile law firms, including law firms that represent Gannett. And yet the company just won't agree to it. And we say, you know, this fervor for representing our communities may fade it's important to make a commitment that's legally binding so that we don't backslide as we have seen newsrooms do in the past. And yet, as much as Gannett touts its diversity commitments, it won't commit to that one simple policy. Well, and I I think it's hard to let go of power. And I think that we see this manifest in a lot of different ways. You know, of course, the biggest and what we're talking about right now is pay equity. We see it every day in our our lives as journalists of color trying to write from an equitable perspective that accurately reflects our communities, something that we haven't really seen a lot of in news, you know, I think a lot of people got really excited, you know, to see this wave of change, especially in 2020, but I would caution not to get too excited. It's still quite difficult to accurately write about a community. I think a lot of people look to the past in journalism with such nostalgia and it's difficult to change and it's difficult to listen. And I think these are things that happen in newsrooms that are are harder to nail down. You know, we can nail down the data, which we have with the pay equity study, but it's really difficult to nail down how many stories in the past year got killed because somebody who was handling it did not understand the perspective that it was coming from. And I think that, you know, making solid changes and adopting policies that the newsroom can see and feel like they're a part of that we can hold people accountable to will kind of build, create the building blocks to, to open up a larger conversation about retention as well, because it's easy to hire people and it's easy to have meetings where everybody's excited and they have all these great ideas. But one thing that I noticed that if there's no buy-in and there's no accountability and there's nothing solid at the end of those meetings, you know, everybody's just kind of standing around looking at each other like, okay, you go first, you know, and nothing fundamentally changes. And I think 
especially this being something that journalism has truly caused harm in. I mean, journalism has truly caused harm in communities of color that, you know, journalists of color also belong to. I think being unreasonable to the point that news companies don't want to engage with us on creating solutions really just says that they don't value our presence in the newsroom. And I have a litmus test when I'm reporting because I tend to overthink and and get to in my own head. So I, I, my litmus test is, is this really a complicated issue or can I go and ask somebody in the community and say, well, what's the solution here? And if they can give me a straight answer, then that makes me sort of wonder, well, who's not engaging here? You know, is there really no money? Is there really uh, too much going on to prioritize this? You know, communities know what they want and what they need. And I think in the same way, newsrooms understand what they want and what they need, especially newsrooms like ours that have, you know, we, as, as Rebecca said, we commend some of the changes that's been ha- that have been happening in this newsroom. We commend the growing diversity of our newsroom. But it's so funny to me when companies hire a lot of people of color and they don't want to accept the change that comes with it. A lot of ideas are, are, are brewing and, and people are really interested in collaborating on solutions that work and solutions that will keep them there. And Gannett says no every time. And again, I just think that goes back to not wanting to let go of power, wanting to fill diversity quotas, but not actually wanting to put in the effort that it takes to keep these perspectives in our newsrooms. And it's so, so needed. Phoenix is 43% Latino and 43% white, dead even. I mean, and uh, the census just came out, that might've changed. You know, we're getting to the point where we're about to be a majority Latino city. And to hear that they don't want to even respond to anything that we're proposing to them is, is, is maddening. (laughs) I can imagine. So these journalists of color who leave where do they go? Are they leaving the industry? Are they going to other publications? Are they starting their own outlets online? All of the above. (laughs) We're seeing folks who are being hired in other newsrooms for major pay increases. Some folks are leaving the industry altogether, and then others are going to some news startups that are really exciting. So, you know, we're glad... (laughs) for folks finding success elsewhere, but there's of course real value in retaining journalists in one place for the long term for all of the sources that they build, all of the institutional knowledge that they bring to the table. If we become just a revolving door, I don't think it's good for the quality of our journalism or for the communities we report on. And we feel like there are a lot of ways that the company could decide to retain people in a better way. You just have to figure out a way to show them so that there's some sort of buy-in, I guess. We're sort of wrapping up here. You know, what advice would you give to other journalists who are in newsrooms who, you know, want to have a bigger say in, in their future, whether it be pay, whether it be representation? What do you, you think, Megan, let's, let's start with you. 
I want to say, you know, every, every fiber of me wants to say unionized and I, and, you know, I don't, I, <laughs> I know not everybody can, you know, <laughs> but going off that, I mean, I do think that there are, as Rebecca said earlier, there's strength in numbers. I think finding allies is really important, you know, and sometimes even just, you know, this might seem really nitpicky and really meticulous, but even just, you know, cataloging, you know, your contributions to the newsroom and having that in your corner. I mean, I think self-advocacy is difficult. So that's why, you know, I feel like pushes for unions and pushes to create a community of allies in your newspaper is probably the most important thing. I mean, it's sort of like, you know, what we see in in newspapers, you know, if you have a a small publication and, and, you know, City Hall wants to charge you like $500 for, you know, your records request, you know, it's make or break whether you have some kind of you know, somebody in your corner who can help you with that. So I think staying united and maybe not even necessarily with people in your newsroom. I mean, just connecting with other reporters and building some strong allies in your corner. But but truly, I think that power dynamics shift when you bring a union into a newsroom. My my career definitely changed after having a a union involved. I was working at at a a newspaper that claimed that they didn't have overtime and it was a small publication. So, I mean, if, if you weren't done with your story, I mean, Hey, the newspaper wasn't going to come out. So you had to finish the story. And so we're just sitting here pretending we're not doing overtime. And there was really nothing that we could do about it because they quote unquote, didn't have money. They didn't offer overtime. I mean, what does that even mean? So you know, really building up the people you have in your corner, whether it's through unions or whether it's through just people in the newsroom backing you and supporting you and really keeping track of what you're doing for the newsroom, because that's the thing. When you come at the the company and you say, I have a lot of unpaid overtime, you'll find if you haven't been keeping track, you'll find that there's not a lot of evidence backing you up building yourself up too to have defenses for when a newsroom is trying to to undercut you and trying to underpay you. I mean, it's unfortunately can really fall on an individual sometimes. I'd encourage people once they notice things in their newsroom that could be problematic in the future to really keep their eye on it. But ultimately, I think there's power in numbers and any way you can defend yourself through allies, through a union, I think that will bring about like the great, the the greatest results. A hundred (laughs) percent. They're there to protect the company, not you. Yeah. And you can find that out very painfully when suddenly the person you go to that you think is, you know, your advocate that's going to help you. And actually, if you have a union, you should go to the union first. Anyway. Yep. A hundred percent. Well, I would absolutely echo everything that Megan has said. That's, Excellent. And I would address the folks who work in newspapers who may be more on the privileged side. Maybe you're well paid. Maybe you're white and have not experienced racism. Or maybe you are a veteran who, you know, knows how to navigate the system of internal politics and all of that and come away well-treated. To all of those folks, and I would say that includes me, it's up to us to 
not just think about ourselves, but to think about those around us and what we can do to use our own standing in the newsroom or our own way of bending power (laughs) to benefit everyone. And so that can be, for instance, sharing your salary with women or people of color in the newsroom around you, not in a bragging way, but in a, hey, you know, I know that newsrooms can be really not transparent about their wage scales. I just wanted to share with you my salary so that if you're ever in negotiations and you're looking for a benchmark, you know, there's some information for you to go on, you know, or, hey, let's get a group together at lunch and talk about our salaries and talk about how we can all advocate for raises for ourselves, you know, if you don't have a union at your newsroom or, you know, speaking out and taking some of the brunt away from so much that rests on journalists of color shoulders to push for diversity commitments, you know, be someone who works alongside the journalists of color in your newsroom to push for these initiatives We all need to be in solidarity with each other. And that's really what I've learned through this whole experience is that, you know, what I care about may not be what you care about and what you care about may not be what I care about. Perhaps, you know, my retirement account is the most important thing to me, but for you, you have a child who has, you know, diabetes and needs, you know, expensive drugs. And so you need better health care plan. Well, those are different, but we can both push for each other's issues and be in solidarity with each other. So that's what I think can be really helpful. And also mentoring. I really think that there's such wonderful things that come out of being a mentor, even informally with people in a newsroom, both for a mentor and a mentee. And so if you're a younger journalist, seek out those veteran journalists to become your mentor. And if you're a more experienced journalist, seek out those younger folks to just ask out to coffee and talk about what they're going through and and share your own lessons with. So those are, are two things that I think everyone can do. Both of you offer some excellent advice about this. This has been a really great conversation. I really enjoyed. Please keep in touch. I'd love to hear what happens next in this saga. I hope it's good. I hope it's an opportunity for you, but also for your newsroom to move move forward. Megan and Rebecca, thanks for coming on the podcast. Thanks a lot. You've been listening to It's All Journalism, a weekly podcast about the people who make the news. You can find out more about us and download past episodes at itsalljournalism.com. While you're visiting our website, sign up for the It's All Journalism newsletter. You'll get all the latest info about our podcast, including episode notes and news about live events and upcoming interviews. Go to itsalljournalism.com to subscribe. Speaking of subscribing, you can subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Podcast One, Spotify, SoundCloud, google play and pretty much anywhere good podcasts are found if you'd like to help us grow our podcast like and share our episodes on social media look for us on facebook instagram and twitter it takes a lot of people to create an episode of it's all journalism nicola grisco produced this episode amber healy wrote our web content 
Nick Capre wrote our theme music, Lamia Brust helped with our booking, Steph Thomas is our social media manager, and I'm your host, Michael O'Connell. Thanks for listening.